So tell me what your breaking news is and the new areas that you're working on. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> you're curious, huh? I uh, am. <laughs> you're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. My guest today is Jonathan Schooler, Distinguished Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Schooler's research takes a big picture perspective in attempting to understand the nature of our mental life, and in particular, consciousness and curiosity. So we have a new grant. It's looking at five different topics, uh, the impact of art on curiosity, creativity, intellectual humility, empathy, and curious construct known as transliminality, which is the permeability between conscious and unconscious thought. Uh And essentially, the idea is to expose people to artistic experiences. We've been focusing primarily on artistic films, but I've also done a little bit with uh, with paintings and we'll be doing work with music as well. And then seeing how that changes people's outlook and performance. And uh. so we've done a number of studies looking in particular at curiosity, but also at creativity. Uh, in one study, we exposed people to various different avant-garde film clips or to a non-art stimulus equally entertaining, which is just looking at pet videos. (laughs) And then we measured people's curiosity in several ways. Uh, We asked them questions about how curious they're feeling at the moment. And I want to circle back on this because there's actually two different kinds of uh, curiosity that we've been looking at over the years. And there's, there's a lot to say about this. One is called general interest curiosity. And that's just a general delight in learning new stuff. And so we ask them, you know, how excited are you to learn about new information of one sort or another? And then we also measure what's known as deprivation curiosity, which is sort of a, a, a feeling of unresolved need for information, that there's something you really need to know uh, that you, that you don't. And we ask them how, to what degree they're experiencing that. And We also then give them an information-seeking task where they can either read articles, interesting articles that provide information about things, or they can play a a simple game that really doesn't have any information content. And what we find is that exposure to art, these avant-garde films, increases their self-reported curiosity, both the general interest and the deprivation. And furthermore, and I think most excitingly, it leads them to be more interested in to read more uh, material. So they, they, it increases their appetite for information. Oh, interesting. It's interesting too, given some of the earlier research you were doing about the ways general interest curiosity and deprivation curiosity diverge. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the place where they converge. That's very astute of you. Yes, exactly right. So it's, this may be the first study that we know of, which has uh, simultaneously increased both general interest and deprivation curiosity. And thank you for alluding to the earlier work. In in earlier work, we've found that the traits of general interest and deprivation curiosity, although they're related to each other, that they have different tendencies if you look at one or the other alone. 
Yeah. So let's start with general interest. General interest curiosity, again, is this delight in learning new information. And there we find it's correlated primarily with just good things. So it's correlated with learning, which makes sense because if you are excited about new information, you'll learn more information. And it's correlated with intellectual humility because if you are always thirsty for interested in, in new information, you rec it's just a recognition of uh, all that you don't know. Mm -hmm. But right. deprivation curiosity, this is a sort of an uncomfortable feeling of not knowing. And that seems to be associated with some darker traits. And you, it kind of makes sense. If you're uncomfortable not knowing something, then you're going to be reluctant to acknowledge that you don't know something. You're going to want to think you know things that perhaps you don't know. So in contrast to general interest curiosity, deprivation curiosity is actually associated with a lack of intellectual humility. People claim that they know things that they don't know. That to me was, was a really interesting thing. And then where you take it next was even more interesting to me. So talk more about yeah. that. So we looked at a number of different measures that sort of suggest that people are not as carefully scrutinizing information uh, mm -hmm. as they might be in, in sort of sort of accepting it. So there's a one measure where we give people statements. That, this was actually ori originally pioneered by uh, Gordon Pennycook. These are actually statements of Deepak Chopra's, and they take the first part of one statement and the last part of a different one. So he, we... The statements are kind of mangled. Uh, and they're bizarre people, statements. <laughs> they're bizarre. They really don't make any sense at all. But they sound, you know, Deepak is so, he's he's so articulate or he, right. he has such a, a way with words that you just string any of his words together and they sound beautiful uh, or can sound beautiful to some. We ask people how how meaningful is this? And people high in deprivation curiosity find these really gibberish sentences uh, meaningful. But the most disturbing uh, finding is we then gave them real news stories and fake news stories and asked them which are the ones that are the real ones and which are the fake ones and which ones would you want to share with other people. And what we find is that people who are higher in deprivation curiosity are more likely to believe the fake news and more willing to share it. And more willing to share it, even if they didn't necessarily believe it. Is that right? Yeah. Did I understand yeah. that correctly? That to me is really interesting. Do you have a theory about that? Well, this is a this has been a finding uh, that uh, Gordon Pennycook has has shown that that essentially the level of uh, belief that people need in order to share something is is not one hundred percent. People will share things even if they don't necessarily one hundred percent believe them mm -hmm. to be true, and, and I, I think this. Part of that may have to do with sort of wanting to persuade yourself, right? Uh, uh, if, okay. if you have if if you have some lingering uncertainty, that may motivate you to want to sort of persuade others, and if others are persuaded, uh, you'll become persuaded as well. There's a, a whole a line of research on something known as true believers, uh, which is this uh, notion of, of people who sort of are proselytizers. And, and part of the, their motivation for wanting to persuade other people is it helps to remedy their own doubts. If I can go out there and persuade oh, lots of other people about this, then this will reassure me. Mm -hmm. They don't aren't necessarily explicitly aware of that, but that is, a, uh, that is one account of the zealotry of uh, <laughs> proselytizers. Huh. So I know that there was some research, and I guess it was done in the in the same earlier work, on conceptual 
novelty and contextual information. And that feels like it may actually be a bridge to some of the new work that you're doing. Can you talk more about that? Because I loved this nexus of stuff. Yeah. So in, in one of our studies, we were interested in the way in which people process information when they're exposed to it over a, a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. And we looked at, we presented them with a particular piece of art, which had an interesting uh, twist to it. So it was actually, if you looked very carefully, but you could easily miss this, it, it actually that was a house that had been cut down the middle. That was a detail that was easy to, hmm. to miss. And so we showed people this piece of art repeatedly and predictably, we found that their interest for the piece of art would decrease as they looked at it um, right. multiple times. But then we pointed out this curious aspect of the art, the fact that it had been cut down half in the middle and gave them an explanation for, for why that had been done. And then we looked at how that changed their uh, experience of the, uh, of the art. And what we found is that people high in general interest, curiosity, that gave them a huge boost uh, yeah. in their interest in this painting. Whereas those who had less general interest, curiosity, or were more on the deprivation curiosity side, didn't find that same boost. So this sort of shows that when you encounter something and have a new perspective on it, that can be a a real catalyst to curiosity, but that this is particularly the case for those who are inclined toward this general interest curiosity. I can also see how that has implications for assisting at least a subset of people in terms of their learning, right? Like you can provide just the new bit of information, just the nugget that suddenly it's like, oh, wow, I suddenly understand this in an entirely different context. Suddenly my brain can attach this to things that I wasn't able to anchor it to before. That seems like that's an important finding. Well, uh, people have have appreciated uh, in the past how giving people a new perspective on a piece of information can be a, a critical link towards enhancing their memory. So this is sort of linking that idea particularly with curiosity and showing that there that there are some people who can who can really benefit particularly from this and and this hits on i think a really important point which is that uh, cultivating general interest curiosity could be of really great value because as i mentioned before general interest curiosity is is associated with uh, with learning and as this last study that we just referred to, it's particularly associated with learning when there's some new sort of perspective shift that arises. So we've been working on creating interventions for enhancing a general interest curiosity. How can we get people to be more curious in this information delight kind of mode? Uh-huh. So those are what I would call curiosity practices, right? Curiosity kind of practices. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So tell me yeah. more. Yeah. So one is really quite simply, and, and I should emphasize that much of this research has been led by my a former graduate student and now postdoc, Madeline Gross. And her dissertation looked at various different ways of 
influencing curiosity. And one thing that she discovered is actually an ancient practice uh, goes back you know, millennium. Uh, Socrates, of course, is uh, well known for this. And this is simply the practice of asking questions. Yeah. So in one study, she had participants a reading text. And in one condition, they did the standard intervention, which is to summarize the text. And then in another condition, she asked them to just imagine questions uh, about the text. And What she found is that if she had them asking questions, that they were more curious about the text and more interested in reading new additional pieces of material. Just the practice of asking questions seems to get you into a curious mindset. You know, I really have to say that resonates. And it rings true, for instance, when I'm working on this show and I'm reading things and you know, sometimes you do your reading and it turns to wallpaper and it just kind of goes past you. And one way that I catch myself with that is I stop and I start asking myself questions about it. And invariably I'm then more engaged or I want to go back and I want to reread something because suddenly I realize, oh, there's a connection here that I glided right past. It seems so simple, right? Ask questions that will help, but it does. It, it it really does, and you you raised another uh, topic area. So let me yeah pivot. Go I, ahead. My curiosity wants to let me pivot there, <laughs> but then I I don't want to lose this train because I we have another really exciting other way of, of facilitating curiosity. But you mentioned this experience of reading and your and your mind glazing over, and this has actually been a long time area of interest of research of mine. Uh, and we're all familiar with this experience where you're reading. And you realize at some point that your eyes have been moving across the page, but your You're mind right. has been completely. You are physically smart. reading, but you are not mentally reading. <laughs> you are not mentally reading, exactly. And this is a, a phenomena that is referred to as mind wandering. And it's something yeah. that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And it can be quite problematic in the case of reading, of course. If you're mind wandering while you're reading, if you're thinking about something completely unrelated, you're not going to remember the text that you've just been reading. And if you're mind wandering while you're listening to a podcast, you're not going to get the podcast. In a lecture, you're not going to get that. If you're mind wandering while driving, it can be quite problematic. So there's a lot of challenges to mind wandering. But we've been asking the question, why do we mind water? What's it, what's it good for if, if, it's, if it's so problematic in all these different situations? And, and by the way, another way it's problematic is in general, when people are mind wandering, they're less happy than when they're on task. Right. But what we found is that all mind wandering is not created equal and that there are some forms of mind wandering that are actually quite helpful. So if you're reading and you're mind wandering about something unrelated to what you're reading, it's not going to help you're reading unless it's the kind of, unless it's not really mind wandering, unless it's like asking questions about what you're reading, in which case it's going to be very helpful. But what we find is that if people are mind wandering about things that they're especially interested in, that rather than being less happy, they're actually more happy, that that mind wandering about things that you're curious about is associated actually with, with creativity, that uh, there's particular kinds of mind wandering where people are thinking about the questions that they find remain unsolved. And that this curious mind wandering we found on days in which creative writers engage in this curious mind wandering, they actually reported being more creative at the end 
of the day. Ah, interesting. We refer to this curious mind wandering as mind wondering. Nice, nice, nice. We think that this is a particularly valuable kind and that whereas, you know, negative perseverative thinking about things that you really can't control is probably not of much value. Mind wondering about topics that you find particularly curious and wonder about uh, may be of great value. But having done that aside, uh, let me circle back to other ways of investigating uh, the impact of curiosity and then this app that I wanted to tell you about. Yeah, please. So what we also found is that having people ask questions actually impacts their mind wandering itself. So if you have people read text and ask questions and then you later let them just engage in a non-demanding task they can readily mind wander what we find is that they're more likely to engage in interesting mind wandering uh, essentially in in mind wondering oh, so you can kind of prime it exactly yeah. ah that's cool yeah you, you can cultivate your curious mind wandering mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. making a practice of asking questions in your own mind as you are encountering information. Yeah, well, this would be why I have a show called Choose to be Curious. (laughs) (laughs) So you have an app. Is this app hoping to sort of help people do this? Is that what you're aiming for? Yeah, so the app is basically designed to help people to increase their curiosity. And it's still uh, in the early testing phases, but our preliminary findings are really quite exciting. We have sort of two different components uh, to the app. One component is a implementation intention, which is a kind of complex word, but let me unpack that for you because it's a really useful concept. The idea is that we can set intentions for ourselves, but if you just say, uh, create a sort of abstract intention, I want to drink less. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't necessarily get activated at the at the right times. Right. What you want to do is to create a, a learned pattern. When this happens, I'll do that. And so yep. rather than having yep. the intention, I want to drink less, when someone asks me, would you like a second drink? I'll say, sparkling water, please. You, you learn to have a habitual response to a particular situation. You don't have to think about, uh, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to drink less, I'm going to drink less. Instead, you just wait until that particular cue happens and it naturally arises, uh, right. the intention. And so we use the same uh, approach for the intention to be more curious. So people identify particular uh, circumstances uh, that would be in in keeping with being more curious. So for example, when I'm at the supermarket, I'm going to purchase a new food that I've not eaten uh, before. Or when I'm at home, I'm going to prepare a new meal that I haven't uh, Uh done before. And so we give them these specific situations in which they are invited to do a particular thing. And they come up with a number of these different implementation intentions. And then we sort of circle around. They have like five or six. And on every other day, we give them one of these implementation intentions. And then on other days, uh, we come up with specific sort of curiosity-provoking ideas, such as try drawing a picture of a a friend from memory um, Mm -hmm. or 
or some uh, activity that uh, they may have not tried before. And what we, uh, what the preliminary findings suggest is that after people do this app for, uh, I believe it was uh, two weeks, they showed increases in their uh, general interest, uh, curiosity, and they were showed some behavioral evidence of reading more on these essays uh, rather than just playing the the, the meaningless uh, word mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. So basically both self-report and behavioral evidence of increases in curiosity. Now, this is preliminary research. Um, so I've seen effects work out really well at first and then go away. So uh, uh, we're, we're not ready to go to market yet, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm very excited. I am very excited to see where this goes because I'll say from, you know, an N of one here, having harvested from the generosity of my guests, their curiosity practices over the years and have habituated, incorporated many of those into my day. One, it can be done. Two, it's great. And three, one begets another. I mean, once you start doing a little of this, it becomes very natural to just kind of come up with to generate other ways of doing it. So for instance, I had a guest some years ago who's an audio engineer, and she talked about how she likes to sort of go into a place and think about what's the smallest sound she can hear or what's the sound that's traveled the farthest. And years later now, I walk outside and I pause for a moment and I just listen. I'm like, what's the farthest sound I'm hearing and how far has it traveled? You know, and what's the story there? And it's just completely built into my day now. So I think you're onto something. I'm excited about this. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you mention this because we've also are uh, complementing in another condition. In addition to these curiosity exercises, we engage in mindfulness exercises where we're uh, specifically inviting people to pay a close attention uh, to their experiences. And the the preliminary evidence suggests that when you combine uh, these, both uh, tend to engage in specific curiosity exercises with uh, mindfulness uh, and really orienting people to investigating their present experience, that that combination may be of particular value. Yeah. And and this leads to a, uh, a construct that I've been uh, uh, working on with my uh, partner, uh, Amanda Gregory, called open mindfulness. And essentially the idea is that there are these two traits that both are of, uh, of real value, but combining the two may be of, of particular value. One is openness to experience, which is really central to curiosity. Openness to experience is almost almost the same thing as being very curious. This is sort of a, a delight in engaging in new activities and learning new information and the arts, daydreaming and creativity. It's a trait, one of one of the big five personality traits uh, that is, is sort of a youthful perspective. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But there are some downsides to openness to experience. Uh, it's associated with distractibility because, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you know, shiny <laughs> object. And also it can be uh, associated with recklessness because, oh, I want to mm-hmm. try this. You know, I want to try sure. riding a motorcycle without a helmet. And so, and so as wonderful a trait as it is, 
it seems like it could use a, a complement to sort of ground it. And so there we think that mindfulness is really quite valuable because so mindfulness allows sort of adding the discernment to openness to experience and the grounding to prevent uh, this tendency towards uh, distraction. So cultivating both openness to experience and mindfulness may provide this uh, sort of superpower of uh, open mindfulness, which we think may be of, uh, of, of great value. Oh, nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Before I let you go, I want to invite you into a curiosity practice of my own construction with my big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for this? Let's give it a go. Okay. Okay. So I have literal big jar. It's got slips of paper. I'm going to take some out, one for you, one for me, one for our audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. So yours is clouds. How is curiosity like clouds? Mine is postage stamp. <laughs> is curiosity like a postage stamp and have one for the audience. So do you want to go first or do you want me to give it a shot first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, I would say that uh, curiosity is like clouds in the sense that we oftentimes find ourselves facing a situation in which we experience a lack of transparency uh, and a, a curiosity about what's behind it. And that just as the clouds can part and reveal uh, uh, an exciting uh, vistas and views, uh, so too uh, with curiosity as the uh, curiosity unveils our uh, understanding in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. Oh, I like that. Very nice. Okay. That was, it was a lucky one. I think clouds is an <laughs> this easy is what one. I ta- this is what I say to people is that we are much more creative in the moment than we give ourselves credit. And people come up with the most interesting insights about the world around us in the context of curiosity. So thank you for that. So I have postage stamp. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm going to say that curiosity is like a postage stamp because when you, if you write a letter, it's not going to get anywhere unless you attach the postage stamp. And I think that many of our projects don't go anywhere unless we attach curiosity to them. And that it is the sort of small little thing we can stick to stuff that moves it in a way that nothing else can. That's that's what I'm going to say. Curiosity is like a postage stamp. And audience, yours is razor. How is curiosity like a razor? Let me know. Uh, social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for this. This has really been a wonderful time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I, I love your postage stamp uh, <laughs> metaphor. I actually think it's interesting that the, the cloud one was um, easier, but I think in because it was easier, it ended up with a, a very straightforward, but an ultimately less profound uh, message than your postage stamp one. So uh, I think that's, that's curious that the more challenging the task, sometimes the bigger the breakthrough. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can also share your razor analogy, hashtag analogy. 
Many thanks to my guest, Jonathan Schooler. Links to his work and the Meta Lab on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.